listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, we are uh, looking again. We're going to continue looking at Jonathan Edwards for a while because uh, there's uh, just there's more to discuss about him, and it will introduce us to the issues with uh, Fuller. So I, I plan to get to Fuller perhaps the last hour this, this afternoon, and then, of course, all day uh, tomorrow. But some of the issues that we're dealing with with Edwards will uh, become be familiar with you, uh, familiar to you by the time we get to Fuller, because he was greatly influenced <clears throat> by him. In fact, the first presentation I have on Fuller is going to be the influence of Jonathan Edwards on Andrew Fuller. Uh, but there's a, a degree of frustration that everyone has when they're teaching Jonathan Edwards because you can never cover everything that you think is important, and especially when you have just this many hours. For example, <clears throat> his book on original sin is one that certainly should be taken uh, very, very seriously and should be interacted with. And we've mentioned some of the things about the theology of original sin, but his book on original sin is quite a masterpiece, and it's development. Also, his book on religious affections. We've talked about the nature of affections, and so some of the central issues that he deals with in his book on religious affections you have heard about, but to see the way that he presents it, to see the order in which he presents it, <clears throat> he expands what he does in the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God by starting off with those things that are not true examples of, of religious affections. And then uh, 12, he, he expands 5 into 12 aspects that are characteristic of, of genuine religious affections. And then he has an applicatory section. And plus sermons. We could look at sermons because his sermons are so filled with theology and so filled with uh, points that cause you to <clears throat> worship and praise on the one hand, and then another to, to contemplate deeply as, <clears throat> excuse me, as to the, uh, the, the theological reasoning and the exegetical reasoning that he is Using. So I, I hope that you will become uh, lifelong readers of, of Edwards, that you'll just make it a point at least sometime every month to read something by Edwards. It, it'll energize your mind. It'll help you think about uh, philosophical issues and theological issues and biblical exegesis uh, in, a, in a new way, and most of the time, I think, an edifying way. Uh, but <clears throat> the... Uh, lecture that I'm going to start with this afternoon is a, a synthetic lecture on, on Edwards. It's the doctrinal preaching of Jonathan Edwards. And so I hope to do a, an, a description of, of what he preached, of how he preached, of the philosophical and theological and exegetical background for his preaching, and then give some uh, examples as to how he handled theology and application of theology in his preaching. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter one, verse twelve. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, 
And the grace of my Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, <clears throat> excuse me, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And now I've heard some people do expositions of this, and they have said that when Paul says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, that I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That he is giving that something as a reason as to why God was more kind to him, that this excused him a bit. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. <clears throat> what Paul is saying is that his acting ignorantly in unbelief, if we understand how Paul deals with ignorance of God in other places, this is a very sinful thing, and unbelief is a very sinful thing. And what Paul is talking about is that it was his ignorance and unbelief that compounded his sinfulness. He was ignorant when he should have been knowledgeable because of the amount of training he had had in the Old Testament, but he was ignorant of something of which he should have been knowledge, knowledgeable. He was an unbeliever when he had the greatest advantage of all of knowing who the Christ should be. And so it seems to me he's setting these forth as things that compounded and intensified his sinfulness, and I think that this is verified then when he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, it is worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so this, this, this ignorant and unbelief compounded his sinfulness, making him the foremost of sinners, and it, it is that which allowed Jesus Christ to display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe. So this is a way in which we, uh, we see those, some of the things that Edwards is, is talking about. God has created the world and that he, he might demonstrate things that have no opportunity for demonstration for which there is a potentiality. Well, how is patience possible to be demonstrated uh, in a condition where there is no being in existence with whom you need to be patient? Uh, but but Jesus Christ demonstrates his perfect patience with someone like, like Paul. And also the reality that the perversity of his heart that kept him from having the true knowledge of God and that kept him from belief was not something that excused him in any sense, but intensified his sin so that he is the, he is the foremost. <clears throat> well, this session is going to begin uh, and a look at the doctrinal preaching of, of Jonathan Edwards. There's a, if, if you can't afford, you can't get the, the big two-volume work of Jonathan Edwards, most of, some of you may have it already. That's, that's something you should have. But there are several little source books that are available. One of them is uh, what we are do, doing here, a Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards uh, reader. But there's another one uh, called The Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. It has some of his uh, best-known sermons uh, in it.
Uh, and it's always an edifying and challenging experience to pick those up and, and read them. And I, I think it also can have a, a beneficial influence on our own preaching, just to, to see how uh, Edwards dealt with the text, how he dealt with the theological intricacies of, of a text, and then how he apply, applied it. <clears throat> so in the introduction to this uh, book, The Sermons of Jonathan Edwards, in the, clo the closing remarks of the editor's introduction states, in the years and centuries since his death, Edwards continues to inspire, convict, enrage, and beguile as no other American Puritan. Well, he has done all those things to me. I think you've picked it up that, that they're just, they're things in Edwards that continue to inspire me and continue to beguile me in, in some ways because his thought is so far above uh, mine. Uh, but I find them engaging doctrinally, compelling practically, so I find myself drawn into a pattern of thinking or even a style of presentation that I've absorbed from Edwards. Often I can think of no clearer way to say something or more forceful way to apply something than the way Edwards did it. Others have found something transcendently engaging uh, in Edwards. And he's going to hand you an outline out so you can follow this. Thank you very much, Rex. I forgot to mention that. <coughs> I'll wait till he finishes that and then. <clears throat> Everyone have one now? All right, great. Others have found something transcendently engaging in Edwards. Reinhold Niebuhr, H. Richard Niebuhr, fell into Edwardsian categories in their contemplation of human sin in the aftermath of World War II as they found evil had thrust itself upon us in all of its dark Edwardsian dimensions. The powers of analysis evidenced early and persisting throughout Edwards' life elicited a note of regret from the 20th century scholar Vernon Parrington, as I mentioned earlier. Had Edwards' mentality not been so anachronistic, according to Parrington, America would not have lost a potentially great scientist to religion. Parrington failed to appreciate the point that all of Edwards' scientific Philosophic, aesthetic, and psychological musings served as an entry point to a discussion of the larger invisible world where God dwelt in infinite sufficiency, bliss, and beauty. All of these disciples were servants of divine revelation and must be subdued to its, all of these disciplines, that is, were servants of divine revelation and must be subdued to its assertions. The atheist Perry Miller said that Edwards repays study because while he speaks from a primitive religious conception which often seems hopelessly out of touch with even his own day, yet at the same time he speaks from an insight into science and psychology so much ahead of his time that our own can hardly be said to have caught up with him. But Miller also warned that Edwards is the kind of thinker that can hardly found a school or have a copiers because he is unique and aboriginal and monolithic power. Edwards does not allow the masses an undisturbed, genial way of approaching life day after day. He will not do, therefore, in the soporific flow of events which we moderns surround ourselves. It is the most sober moments, in the most sober moments of self-discovery, however, or in the wake of a Richard Speck or a Joseph Stalin or the murder of Emmett Till or the contours of reality as stroked by the pen of Jonathan Edwards, they seem much more reasonable, a much more reasonable autopsy of human existence 
than that of his more politic contemporaries such as Benjamin Franklin. On the flip side of the same token, his view of the intrinsic dignity of human nature and of the future of humanity was infinitely more awe-inspiring than the fossil and congenial deism and the self-congratulatory anthropocentric enlightenment philosophies which were gradually infiltrating the worldview of the early 18th century. Miller's warnings against the society of Edward's copiers is appropriate. God has given that gift to the church once. We can, however, be inspired and instructed by him. We must not allow our own God-given uniqueness to be swallowed up by other men simply because they are superior to us. And we must not spoil their unique contribution to God's church by seeking to redo what they did, except in a criminally inferior way. Nevertheless, study of Edwards would increase one's confidence in the power of Christian revelation to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God in taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, that having been said, what is Edwards' uh, preaching theory? What is his theory of preaching? <clears throat> Particularly important is Edwards' concentration on preaching as the premier human activity. In preaching, Edwards proclaimed and applied the many doctrines which composed the revelation of Scripture. He searched for appropriate words, analogies, and images, and engaged in as much precision and elaboration as a particular text in light of the whole of Revelation required. His aim was to strike home to the conscience the necessity of the soul's relish for the beauty of God. The introduction to a Jonathan Edwards reader describes Edwards' commitment to the task of preaching. The central vehicle for revivalism was pulpit oratory, and for virtually his entire life, Edwards was first and foremost a preacher. The efflorescence of scientific, philosophical, and later psychological rumination took place within a context of weekly <coughs> preaching on the Word. These sermons undergirded almost all of his philosophic work and lent that work much of its urgency. Ultimately, Edwards' ideas, vision, insights were applied to the central task of converting hardened sinners in the pews from love of self-righteousness to disinterested love of God and divine righteousness. And by disinterested, of course, you understand that we mean something that has no personal self-interest, but is an objective uh, evaluation of the supremacy of the love of God and divine righteousness. Edwards developed his sermons in accordance with an idea that included both experiential and theoretical components. At the experiential level, he did not share his grandfather Solomon Stoddard's idiosyncratic defense of the usefulness of unregenerate ministers. Though God might sovereignly use such through the power of the gospel itself, the minister's self-consciousness must rest on a deep experience of the grace of God. This undergirded an understanding of the true nature of saving faith. He must not be a blind leader of the blind, but be fully acquainted with experimental religion and not ignorant of the inward operations of the Spirit of God. At the theoretical level, he called into service all the intellectual powers with which he so abundantly was endowed, for the minister must be pure, clear, and full in doctrine. He must not lead his people into errors, but teach them the truth only, and show himself well acquainted with the written word of God, mighty in the scriptures, and able to instruct and convince gainsayers. In all of this, Edwards reflects most worthily his Puritan heritage. 
self-examination concerning an experience of saving grace, precise analysis of biblical components of the objective work of God outside of us, and the morphology of the work of the Spirit within us constituted the constant task of the Puritan minister. All of these were necessary if he were to be a curer of souls. Edwards was in dead earnest in this calling. So let's look something now at his experiential preparation. Edwards' own spiritual encounter serves as a background for the intensity of his sermonic application. He records in May or June of 1721 his first memory, as we've looked at it, that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since. It came to him on reading the words, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. These became a path for his soul to a sense of the glory of the divine being a new sense, quite different from anything ever experienced before. His whole experience became concentrated in a desire to enjoy that God, to be wrapped up in Him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. His prayers now were engaged with a new sort of affection. He points to an identifiable experience in which the union of affection and doctrine became a necessary element of his thought. He says, from about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ in the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations on them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up, as it were, a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I know not how to express. Uh, these impressions, ever enlarging and intensifying, formed the basis of his life's work. His analyses of revival, religious affections, the will, original sin, true virtue, and the end for which God created the world show the same grand assumptions, that human purpose is fully constituted in a new sense and relish for the excellence and the holy beauty of the divine being. Precisely this quality fascinated Edwards when he first heard of Sarah Pierpont. In his famous description of his then future bride, Edwards remarked how the young lady from New Heaven was beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world and such palpable experiences that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be ravished with his love forever, his love and delight forever. This consciousness fills her with a sweet, a strange sweetness in her mind, a singular purity in her affections, so that you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world. That the ministry should experience these graces was axiomatic to Edwards. In a sermon on John 5.35 about, Jonathan, about uh, <clears throat> John the Baptist, <clears throat> he was a burning and shining light. Edwards illustrates the necessity of both heat and light in a true gospel minister. A burning light has a heart filled with ardor. His ministrations are done in fervency and zeal. His fervent zeal, which has its foundation to spring in that holy and powerful flame of God, flame of love to God and man, that is in his heart appears in the fervency of his prayers to God and in the earnestness and power with which he preaches the word of God, 
declares to sinners their misery and warns them to fly from the wrath to come and reproves and testifies against all ungodliness and the unfeigned earnestness and compassion with which he invites the weary and heavy laden to their Savior, and the fervent love with which he counsels and comforts the saints, and the holy zeal, courage, and steadfastness with which he maintains the exercise of discipline in the house of God, notwithstanding all the opposition he meets with in that difficult part of his ministerial work. But genuine and lasting heat, however, always has the product of light. Zeal, no matter how high it is pitched, abstracted from the spiritual understanding of truth, will produce bluster, but not either love or holiness. Edwards began section four of religious affections this way. Holy affections are not heat without light, but evermore arise from some information of the understanding, some spiritual instruction that the mind receives, some light or actual knowledge. Any affection not rising from a light in the understanding is certainly not spiritual. This light in the understanding, however, is not mere informational or only a notional understanding of true doctrine. Spiritual understanding of Scripture involves having the eyes of the mind open to behold the wonderful spiritual excellency of the glorious things contained in the true meaning of it. These truths always were in the Scripture, but the eyes were blind to their excellency. A heightening of affections by the increase of spiritual understanding may arise from seeing the amiable and bright manifestations of the divine perfections, the excellency and sufficiency of Christ, the suitableness of the way of salvation by Him, and the spiritual glory of the precepts and promises of Scripture. The sight of the glory of these Gospel elements gives an intuitive certainty of their truthfulness, according to Edwards. This spirit-taught certainty Paul invokes when he labors in proclamation for the Gentiles that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Edwards argued that this assurance of knowledge was not irrational or opposed to reason, but could only arise from a work of the Spirit, changing the heart and opening the spiritual eyes to see the fitness and suitableness of this way, the admirable wisdom of the contrivance, and the perfect answerableness to our necessities of the provision that the gospel exhibits. When this true sense of divine beauty is given, the soul discerns the beauty of every part of the gospel scheme. Such assurance is essential, experiential preparation for preaching. Now, <clears throat> that's experiential preparation. Let's look now at theoretical preparation. <clears throat> uh, Edwards would teach us that effective preaching involves substantial theoretical commitments prior to engagement in the practice. Among these would be an understanding of the character of the canon, an integrated grasp of orthodox doctrine, a cogent understanding of the relation between reason and affection, and the appropriate use of words and arguments in light of that relationship. His view of the progress and coherence of biblical revelation clearly penetrates every aspect of his preaching. Though the quantity of revelation increased throughout the history of the Bible, the quality was of one piece and its purpose was always single. 
the same qualitative or essential content was present in the gospel in every biblical epoch. Thus, the gospel never altered from age to age, and evangelical faith always exhibited the same character. Man's duty has always been to love God with a benevolent and a complacent love because of God's infinite loveliness and perfection. Since the fall, it has always been necessary to find favor with this God only through the mediatorial sacrifice of the seed of the woman, the Son of God. The fullness, however, or quantity of the revelation has not always been the same, but gradually has increased until the fulfillment of all in the incarnation, passion, and exaltation of Christ. An even greater display of it all remains to be revealed at the appearance of Christ, but it will still be of the same quality as that given in Eden. This mode of interpretation and development struck Edwards as most beautiful and entertaining. For Edwards, therefore, the whole of Scripture comes to bear on every individual text. Seemingly harmless texts are given an ineffable awesomeness. To see, this, to see this clearly, one need only remind himself that sinners in the hands of an angry God arose out of a text in Deuteronomy 32:35, their foot shall slide in due time. The use of reason was not seen as antithetical to biblical exegesis, but as demanded by it and harmonious with it. Even his most extended discussions from reason, his guiding premises are derived from biblical texts, Edwards, a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world, is an example of conscious and extended application of reason parallel to scriptural exegesis. Reason, thus informed and sanctified, must be pressed after the Anselmic model to demonstrate the reasonableness of Christian doctrine and that the God of the Bible is the only possible God, his philosophical musings above about nature and the universe were fueled by his view of the excellence of the triune God. Given this, we must not miss Edward's undiminished pessimism about unaided reason for making any progress at all in deciding matters of infinite importance. Inherent tensions within reality would strictly forbid the possibility of reason moving toward unity and resolution. The best reasoner in the world, Edwards asserts, endeavoring to find out the cause of things by the things themselves might be led into the grossest errors and contradictions and find himself at the end in extreme want of an instructor. Reason uninstructed by revelation affords not a single historical example of any person or people that emerged from atheism or idolatry into a knowledge or adoration of the one true God. Edwards was more for, forceful even than his Puritan progenitors in his method of application. All of his doctrine was application, and all of his application was doctrine. He used the commentaries of Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, and Philip Doddridge to great advantage, and like those commentators and the Puritan writers which he often read, linked the task of interpretation to application. He could not settle for mere cognition of abstract concepts, or applicatory methods that engage in a, sim sing a simple exchange of words of theology for words of morality. He sought not moralism, but true piety. The preacher must aim at producing godly affection and piety. This involved the kind of exposition of doctrine in which the hearer 
senses that his eternal well-being is bound up with an accurate appropriation of the truth. A sermon must seek to overcome the prejudices of nature. In a sermon on Genesis 19.14, Edwards remarks, The reason why men no more regard warnings of future punishment is because it don't seem real to them. And again from the same sermon, this opposition of nature to divine truth causes that the being of God and another world don't seem real to them. The preacher must seek to combine rational conviction with sensory awakening to the truth, that is, the commitment and subjection of one's affections to the idea that is presented. In speaking of God glorified in man's dependence, Edwards urged his fellow ministers not only to ascribe to him all the glory of redemption, but to increase in a sensibleness of our great dependence on God and to mortify a self-dependent and self-righteous disposition. Though the preacher must try in word and passion to reach the heart, only the Spirit of God does this finally. The truths that are revealed in the Word of God convey the content of the notion or the proposition, but seeing the excellency of the doctrine comes only immediately from the Spirit of God. Saving faith always involves such a conviction of the truths of religion as come from a sense of their divine excellency. In his preaching, therefore, one observes close biblical exegesis, instruction in doctrine, its extended analogies and images drawn from nature. For there is an analogy between the divine constitution and disposition of things in the natural and in the spiritual world, as Edward says, a firm commitment to scriptural typology and confident attempts both at the rational demonstration of divine truth and urgent appeals to believe divine truth. Not only in content, but in verbal impression, Edward sought to do all that was consistent with the infinite importance and infinite loveliness of the subject matter. <clears throat> Let's look at his use of reason as a tool for doctrine and exegesis in spite of his great hesitation about reason in its naked form unless it is informed by the propositions of Scripture. Nevertheless, it is a gift that God has given us and when, when guided by right uh, uh, propositions or when reasoning upon material that is given us, it can be very useful. So the use of reason as a tool for doctrine and exegesis. Reason and philosophy, though apparently identical in some situations, that is, when men are left to themselves, in reality are two distinct things. The distinction between them and that which makes the distinction clearly emerges in this statement. It is unreasonable to suppose that philosophy might supply the defect of revelation, showing that reason can function for or against a philosophy and is capable of discerning the superiority of revelation. A philosophy is constructed by the, ba by, by the process of reasoning, but reason itself operates on the basis of knowledge available to it. Edwards affirms, the natural faculties of men in all nations are alike, and did nature itself furnish all men with the means and materials of knowledge, philosophy need never turn traveler either in order to her own improvement or to the communication of her lights to the world. Clearly, that which reason needs is a positive and certain source of information. 
If it did not need it, then questions of the greatest importance should have been settled long ago. In discussing the endless variety of disputes, even among the Grecian philosophers, Edwards remarks, why did not reason put the matter out of question in those times, or at least immediately after? The infinite contradictions and uncertainties among the ancient philosophers produced the sects of the skeptics. In, response, in respect to religion, Socrates and Plato either were or pretended to be skeptics, beating down the absurd notions of others, but seldom building up anything of their own, or when they did, building on mere conjectures or arguments even suspected by themselves. But we must not let the failure philosopher, philosophy make us skeptical about the value of reason. It is a gift of God and is essential knowledge and is essential knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Edwards has a very specific place for reason in his approach to the Christian faith. Edwards defines it as that power or faculty an intelligent being has to judge of the truth of propositions, either immediately, only by looking on the proposition, which is judging by intuition and self-evidence, or by putting together several propositions which are already evident by intuition, or at least whose evidence is originally derived from intuition. At least four characteristics are present in this definition of reason. First, reason is a native ability and function of the mind to receive and organize information from creation so as to establish necessary questions about reality. This is implied in the word intuition. The common experience of mankind pose questions about death, evil, good, right, wrong, distinction between man and beast, and so forth. The forms of society and the development of philosophy represent the attempt to construct answers to these. Natural human development produces this kind of discernment. An infant, when it first comes into the world, sees persons act and hears their voices before it has so much comprehension as to see something of their consistence, harmony, and concurrence. It makes no distinction between their bodies and other things, their emotions and sounds, and the motions and sounds of inanimate things. But as its comprehension increases, the understanding and design begin to appear. Uh, for Edwards, this involves an implicit faith in our senses and in the common sense of mankind. What numberless truths are known only by consequence from that general proposition that the testimony of our senses may be depended on. The general proposition may be demonstrated by reason, but the truths themselves are inferences from the general proposition and not capable of being proved by themselves independent of the general proposition. That is, that the testimony of our senses may be depended on. Reason, second, reason can construct a means to test any claim to authority. Edwards consistently used the words agreeable to reason when discussing the proving of Christian doctrine. Christian teaching about the future state are notions every way agreeable to reason. It seems much the most rational to suppose, he would say in another place. In a terribly interesting passage, Edwards speaks of both the limits <coughs> and the possibilities of reason. He says, if human reason by anything that has happened since the creation be really very much corrupted, and if God is still propitious and does not throw us off, but reserves us for that end for which he made us, it cannot be imagined that 
He would leave us to our reason as the only rule to guide us in that business, which is the highest end of life. For it is not to be depended on, and yet we exceedingly need something that may be depended on in reference to our everlasting welfare. It does not seem to me reasonable to suppose that if God be merciful after we have forfeited his favor, he will manifest his mercy only in some mitigations of that misery into which we have plunged ourselves. So it does not, so he's, he's drawing certain conclusions about uh, the insufficiency of, of reason and God not leaving us to our reason, saying that it doesn't seem reasonable to suppose that God would leave us simply to our reason. Thus we have in one passage the affirmation of the corruption of reason and the studied conclusion reason gives as to what can be done in light of reason's incapacities. This use of reason does not present us with a contradiction, however. Edwards rejects the power of reason actually to induce from itself first principles of a system of truth, but does not deny its capacity to discern truth when presented with it or its capacity to discern which option is most probable when presented with several possibilities. The starting of a proposition is one thing, uh, but the proof of it is quite another. He says, therefore, reason determines truth by things which reason determines to be the properties of truth. When these properties are present, the thing presents itself to us as truth. When they are absent, we reject the truth of the proposition. If the expectation be reasonable, then the not answering of it must, be, must so far appear unreasonable or against reason. <clears throat> A third aspect of reason. Reason can interpret and synthesize data. The faculty of reason receives the data given, given it from whatever source and organizes it into genera. Sources from which material may come include human testimony from credible eyewitnesses, credible history, memory, present experience, geometric measuring, arithmetic calculation, or scientific experimentation. Reason does not establish a bias against information received from any of these sources, but operates as an organizer, interpreter, and synthesizer. Some may use reason or the word reason to describe their opinion or prejudice which they maintain apart from evidence. Reason can draw conclusions consistent with the data, thus interpreted and synthesized. Edwards argues convincingly against the assertion of Matthew Tyndall, the deist, that since reason is the judge whether there be any revelation or whether any pretended revelation be really such, therefore reason without revelation or undirected by revelation must be the judge concerning each doctrine and proposition contained in that pretended revelation. And so Matthew Tyndall wanted to say that since we judge whether or not something is a revelation by certain characteristics it must have, therefore we can go inside the revelation and judge independently of each doctrine taught by it. So if you see something as a revelation and it teaches that, there's a, that God is a trinity, this seems unreasonable in itself, and so we're free to reject the doctrine of the trinity. If you receive something as a revelation that has the marks of a revelation, but this, this teaches that there's a substitutionary atonement 
and that there can actually be an imputation of sin from one being to another or the punishment of sin from one being to another, this seems unreasonable, so we're free to reject that. And so Edwards is interacting with this contention of Matthew <coughs> Tyndall. He says that this is an unreasonable way of arguing. In fact, if what Tyndall argues is true, then we must have done with all such things as arguments, and Tyndall's arguments themselves become nonsense. But Edwards constantly operated upon the supposition that there are some general propositions, the, the truth of which can be known only by reason, from which an infinite multitude of other propositions are inferred and reasonably and justly determined to be true and rested in as such on the ground of the truth of that general proposition. Some people therefore use the word reason to refer to a line of argument built upon evidence. Certainly nothing should be accepted apart from evidence worthy to influence the faculty of reason. But once the general proposition, that is, man stands in need of a revelation, and another, Holy Scripture is a divine revelation, are received, then reason no longer stands in judgment over the credibility of any teaching fairly inferred from revelation. So reason can <clears throat> look at all the characteristics of any claim to revelation. It can examine the evidence, and then when it, infer, it, when it infers that, that this particular thing is revelation, that is the general proposition from which then we, we, we derive other propositions without arguing with it if we have already assumed that that particular proposition is true in and of itself. Revelation for Edwards is a separate source from which reason may derive information. Also, reason must judge as to whether any pretended revelation comes with enough evidence to verify it. But once received, revelation purges philosophy and provides data ad infinitum. Were it not for divine revelation, I am persuaded, Edward says, that there is no one doctrine of that which we call natural religion, which notwithstanding all philosophy and learning, would not be forever involved in darkness, doubts, endless disputes, and dreadful confusion. <coughs> the doctrines of revealed religion are the foundation of all useful and excellent knowledge. The Word of God leads... Excuse me. <clears throat> the Word of God leads barbarous nations into the way of using their understandings. It brings their minds into a way of reflection and abstracted reasoning and delivers from uncertainty in the first principles, such as the being of God, the dependence of all things upon Him, being subject to His influence and providence and being ordered by His wisdom. Such principles as these are the basis of, <clears throat> are the basis of all true philosophy, as appears more and more as philosophy improves. Revelation delivers mankind from that distraction and confusion which discourages all attempts to improve in knowledge. Revelation actually gives men a most rational account of religion and morality, the highest philosophy, all the greatest things that belong to learning concerning God, the world, human nature, spirits, providence, and eternity. Revelation not only gives us the foundation and the first principles of all learning, but it gives us the end, the only end, that would be sufficient to move a man to the pursuit. Edwards has pages of demonstrations of this claim. Some of his evidences are philosophical, but the majority of them involve the application of critical reason to the study of history. 
The study of history reveals several important realities for Edwards. The first thing that he <coughs> learns from the study of history. History is the vehicle by which the conglomerate reason of man can become more clear in its apprehension of the meaning of revelation. Second, it is also the vehicle by which men become more subtle and established in their strongholds against the conclusions of divine revelation. And third, the study of history informs us as to whether any progress can be made toward God apart from revelation. Man needs not only revelation, however, but the assistance of a divine and supernatural light. This is not a special faculty that God gives which overrides the natural faculties of men. Instead, it is the removal of the moral bias which controls the use of reason. The personal ministry of the Holy Spirit teaches, enlightens, and disposes a sinner toward God with a sufficiency of tendency so that repentance and faith are inevitable. Regeneration involves the removal of the moral impediment to the reception of divine revelation and the continual presence of the Holy Spirit to teach and to guide, but it alters neither the substance of the faculty of understanding nor the content of divine revelation. So <clears throat> given this interaction between uh, revelation, reason, and history, and his understanding of the necessity of this operation to the Spirit of God to remove the prejudices that we naturally have uh, in relationship to these things. Uh, how does this affect the way Edwards actually preaches doctrine? Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.